Welcome to the International School Podcast. I'm your co-host, John McDin, and Dan, hello. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good. And yourself? You're moving yeah. again. Moving again, yeah. And you were here in my uh, home city last week, and I missed you because I was I in know. Austria. So. Yeah, you were in Austria. Anyway, you know, and we've just been talking, and I know, Dan, you've been really very uh, proactive about keeping in touch with this whole accelerated change with AI and chatbots and GPT-3, 4, uh, you know, uh, Claude and Bard. There's just so much going on. And I think what I enjoy is that you're always kind of keeping up and trying things. And you were just mentioning you were on GitHub trying. Why don't you tell us a bit about what you were trying? Because that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, literally just before this call, uh, Auto GPT, it's just, uh, you know, built on top of the you know, chat GPT-4, and it basically allows you to create tasks that can function independently and keep without a human. So you create a task and it just keeps modifying it and keeps going. So again, I've, I've heard people say it's amazing. I, I'm just about to use it. I'll, I'll, I'll probably play around a bit more after this call with it. Like we were just saying the new cycle now is every 24 hours is, is um, it's like a year in tech news now with, with, with artificial intelligence. And, and, you know, there's a lot of hype, but there's also, a, you know, no one, you know, it's unknown where it's going right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, the thing that always makes me a little nervous is this term black box. Well, there's this black box and we don't know what's actually going. And, you know, when the Google CEO uh, shares that in a podcast, I'm thinking, you really might want to know what's going on in that black box. Anyway, you one can't know. Thing that's that the I crazy think, thing about it. You can't know what's going on. Yeah, which is amazing. One thing definitely with uh, ChatGPT has been how this has been a, a value-added proposition for a lot of teachers. We've seen things on lesson plans, uh, writing reports, uh, just doing, you know, creating differentiated literature circles. And so you just see a lot of teachers making the most of it. And that's been really exciting because a lot of the work that teachers have to do that's not focused on teaching and learning often is administrative and it can be time consuming. And, and I think What's exciting to see in the landscape is how teachers are sharing that on YouTube and different professional learning networks and really leveraging the tool and saying, hey, I can do this and why don't you try that? So that's been really exciting. Coincidentally, <clears throat> with all this accelerated change, uh, Dan and I came across this organization called Real Fast Reports, and they're based out of the UK. And we're really excited to have them here today as our guests. You know, the year's finished and, you know, report cards are kind of done. And of course, there's a lot of emotion and, you know, workflows and time consumption creating reports. And we're going to unpack a bit with uh, Peter and Angela about their organization and also talk about how does a small company leverage this technology to start their own business. So Peter and Angela, welcome to International School Podcast. Maybe I'll let you each introduce yourselves very briefly and then we'll kick off. Thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. Um, yes, I'm Angela and I'm one of the co-founders of Real Fast Reports. As you said, I'm a former teacher. So uh, for my sins, chemistry was my subject and um, I taught for nearly 10 years across schools in London in different contexts. Um, I currently work at the Department for Education in a totally separate field. <laughs> and alongside that, have recently set up Real Fast Reports with Peter. Peter. And I'm Peter. I was also a teacher for about 12 years, a physics teacher, both in the UK and overseas. And over the years, I've been involved in a few startups as well. 
for the last three or four years, I've been working full time as a web entrepreneur. Fantastic. So one thing that I'm finding really interesting is the idea that you're a small organization, there are two of you, and ChatGPT got released and there's an API, which is a way that small companies can leverage that technology. What would be interesting for our listeners is maybe unpacking that process. So you come up with this idea and you're thinking, wow, ChatGPT3 really could help us. How did you get the API? What is an API? And what are some of the steps that suddenly you realize, okay, we were hot onto something? Yeah, so the, the API is something that, that people talk about the API all the time at the moment, and a lot of people don't know what it is. So I'll try and explain it a little bit. Um, so for those of you who have, who have tried ChatGPT, ChatGPT is what you call like a user interface, in this case, a web interface where a human types stuff into it and then the human gets stuff back out of it. Um, API stands for Application Programming Interface. And basically it's a way for computers to talk to computers rather than humans to talk to computers. So with us, what, what, when you talk to real fast reports, for example, so you as a human can talk to real fast reports and type in some stuff to write a report. We can then talk in the background, our real fast reports computer can talk to the open AI computer to get it to do cool AI stuff, it can send back cool AI stuff and we send it back to you. So the computer to computer communication is done via, via APIs. So that's what we're using. Fantastic. And Angela, how did you suddenly come up? You did, was ChatGPT your kind of motivation to start this? You're like, wow, we need to leverage this or were you already on the track to something? Yeah, actually, no. So um, we are, I think, uh, well, we will be one year old by the time that this uh, podcast goes live. Um, so we had started Real Fast Reports before the big uh, sort of media furore around ChatGPT when it was released. Um, uh, so Peter and I, being former teachers, were catching up, reminiscing about things we really loved about teaching and things we really didn't love about teaching and writing lots of reports every academic year was one of those things that we didn't love about teaching uh, and around a similar time pete was chatting to some of his tech buddies um, about progress in the ai space and heard about large language models including gpt3 which was the precursor to chat gpt and yeah the idea was born um, to use so, some large language model technology to improve the processes around writing reports and cut down teacher workload. How interesting. And did you anticipate, so you weren't anticipating that it's by coincidence this came about or were you working with a different type of AI prior? No, so we we didn't know that, or I certainly didn't know, Pete may, may have had other insights, but I didn't know I that there be, would be I knew something. it was gonna be, yeah, I knew it was gonna be absolutely revolutionary right from the off. The first one I started using GPT-3, I knew it was gonna, change the world basically um, but we didn't foresee this this sudden surge in popularity that chat gpt uh you know really captured the public imagination in a way that gpt3 its precursor did not interesting do you, do you think as well that i mean it's a slight tangent but do you think in, in a way there's some overhype and, and especially in the mainstream media because obviously at the heart of it it's it's, it's machine learning which you know I've, I've looked i've studied a bit in the old days and you know you train a, a computer on, on a set of data and and i think it, it's getting a little bit reported like it's you know 
a monster that's going to take over the world, I think, a little bit now. Do you, do you think that's the case a little bit? Because at, at its heart, you know, it, it's, it's something quite logical. Um, my perspective is that it's simultaneously underhyped and overhyped, um, mm. effectively. And until you really start playing around with it and trying to get it to do actual real things, you, you don't really know what it's good at and what it's not sure. good at um, and, and what it's overhyped for and underhyped for. Um, yeah. Um, I definitely think it's vastly, even GPT-4 as it stands at the moment, is vastly capable and it's capable of doing some pretty amazing things. And even the things that it's not good at, in two or three years, it's going to be amazing at those things. Um, so if you take the example of, you said you were trying out this auto GPT thing, right? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, uh, I, was, I was essentially foreseeing something like this with my friends over the past few weeks because we were going through the process that auto GPT is automating. So one yeah. thing that one thing that ChatGPT can do uh, is write code, for example. So you can yeah. tell GP, ChatGPT to write a function to do something that you want it to do, which is cool. It writes code. Uh, it often makes mistakes in that code. So it writes you some code to do a thing you want to do. Uh, and then you put that code and you run that code and then you get errors. So you put the error messages back in uh, yeah. and ChatGPT can then use those error me messages to try and correct its code. You then put the code back in, you run the code, uh, and then you keep doing that until you don't get any errors, which is one thing. But then on top of that, you, you want your code not only to be error-free, but you want it to actually do what the function is. So for example, I was getting ChatGPT to make me a function to convert American spelling into British spelling, American English into British English. And I just wanted a simple heuristic that would like fix 90% of the most common problems kind of thing. So this is what I was getting it to do. Yeah. Uh, and you, not only do you want the code not to have errors, but you want the code to work on test cases. So then I was like, ah, this is clever. I can make ChatGPT make the test cases. So can you give right. me 50 examples of, of text in any type of English and then convert it to British English and American English? Blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. So you start getting this idea that ChatGPT can not only test itself, but also it can generate the tests in order to test itself. And right, at this point, yeah, I was yeah. getting super, super excited. And this is what AutoGPT does, right? So they're wrapping all of that up into something that's going to that's gonna save you from having to take that code and paste it in and run it and paste the errors back. It's cool. But in this whole process of doing that, I realized some of the limitations. Basically, ChatGPT is not that good at writing complicated code. And even writing something that sounds as simple as converting you know, words ending in I-Z-E into I-S-E, which is not that hard. ChatGPT got confused writing this function. You know, the function got to being about maybe this long on the screen. And when it fixed one error, it would just create another error or it would fix one thing and it would remove part of the function. And so it was clear to me that like this, this process, this auto-reflective process of it being able to test, like generate its own tests and improve itself is like insanely amazing. But the underlying AI isn't quite there to, to be able to do really sophisticated, complicated tasks yet. But if you give that, if you give that like one year, two years, and you think that GPT is not only going to be able to take text input, it's also going to be able to take image input as well, then you could, you could use this kind of self-reflection and self-testing to build all sorts of insight. It's going to be incredible. But right now, I think so. Right now, I think it's a little bit overhyped because fundamentally it's not sophisticated enough to, to cope with complex programming tasks, for example. But the, it's underhyped in that people are only just beginning to realize the, the, the power of this auto GPT type function where it, where it reflects upon itself and tests itself and gives itself feedback.
going to be amazing. Interesting. I don't know if that made any sense. No, that's great. That, no, that's really interesting. So you guys decided out of the blue that of all the things that ChatGPT, you decided we're going to write report cards and we're going to help people with report cards. Now, <clears throat> report cards, of course, uh, hit a nerve for many educators having written report cards. And I have colleagues that write hundreds of report cards that are teaching humanities or you know, A-levels, IB, IGCSB, whatever it is. And, and it is, it's a season that's stressful and, and it requires hours and hours. Why, what kind of, what was your experience yourselves as educators that said, okay, we need to solve this. This is not tenable. Yeah, it was really born out of our personal experience of it being a real pain point. And in fact, one of the schools we spoke to just earlier today described it as the cost benefit analysis just not balancing. So the, the, there are benefits to writing reports or report cards, and there are benefits to parents receiving feedback and students receiving feedback periodically in that format. Um, but the burden of the, the that it takes in order to produce those reports, not just for the individual teachers, but often for the wider school system in the proofreading and the checking and the administration around them too. So um, yeah, it was just really born out of that from us, from our perspective of having experienced it and then as parents reading reports and thinking, you know what, <laughs> these can be better. So let's try and work out a way to help make things better. It's interesting you said the school that you were talking to was aware that the value added proposition was limited considering the front loading that you have to do. Why do you think, Peter, then the people keep writing reports when they know the value added proposition is not that great? Yeah, this is this is a core cool question. This is a key question. Um, I think it's partly it's a cultural thing. You know, written school reports have been a, a, a part of teaching culture and, and the culture for parents and students for decades and decades. Like literally the other day I was at my mum's place and she had her school reports and I and I scanned a bunch of her school reports on my phone because it was really interested to see them, interesting to see them. I wanted to read them. And she's got somewhere her mum's school reports and might even have her grandma's. I mean, school reports are a, are a thing. They're a, they're a cultural thing that I think do have value for parents and students uh, and that are not going to go away anytime soon. Are they, do they have huge, like, how do you measure that value and how do you exactly describe that value? I'm not entirely sure because there, there's lots of other ways of communicating information to parents that might, uh, might lead to more mm, uh, better measurable outcomes in terms of student performance or student engagement. So yeah, I don't know, for me, it's a, we, we, we're coming at it from the, from the perspective that reports are almost, I don't want to say it, but like a necessary evil. They're a thing that exists and many, many teachers have to write them. And we want to optimize that process as much as possible, both in terms of saving time and improving reports to get better value. Um, but ultimately, are, are terminal reports at the end of terms and at the end of the year the best way to do feedback? I think that's an open question. I think it's yeah, one, think one piece of the armory, isn't it? It's one piece of the feedback sort of tools that you have. Um, but yeah, it was it was sort of a reflection that they they have existed for a long time. I treasure my school reports. Um, I'm sure I'll treasure my children's school reports. Um, so yeah, it, they're a feature <laughs> currently of our of many school systems. Dan, have your kids yet gotten reports? Yeah, they get reports. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I, 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 I had very mixed reports as a student myself, to be honest. When I think about it, I don't think I had very happy memories. 
Neither do I. I did not treasure my report cards, that's for sure. So one of the things, as you were saying, Angela, is that it's one of the, uh, you know, tools, one of the uh, points that people can gauge student learning and progress. So if we know that many schools and pedagogic thinkers are saying that actually report cards don't work and, you know, portfolio assessment, uh, regular feedback, kind of that reflective inquiry process tends to give a better gauge of what's happening. How do you feel that you're kind of working with, you know, something that might be considered as not as effective, but you obviously there are enough schools that still have to do it. They're kind of caught in it. Is that what it is? I think, well, I think, yeah, it's, it's something which, I mean, uh, would, would, their, it, would their quality improve to an extent that actually they do become part of that useful feedback mechanism? Um, and if they didn't take so much time, perhaps schools would retain them for longer. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there are certainly other kinds of feedback mechanisms that in the 21st century, um, schools absolutely should be making more use of. And this is just one of the pieces of the puzzle, I think. And Peter, what do, uh, when you talk to uh, your clients, which are schools, what are some of the, the things that, you know, they're scratching their heads and what kind of resonates for them suddenly to think, oh, there's a quicker, your name is Real Fast Report. So obviously time is the, of essence. So what are people really coming to you with? What are their pinch points? And you're saying, hold on, this is how we can alleviate that. Yeah, I mean, um, one nice thing, because you've got, you, we kind of have two customers almost. We have the teachers themselves, well, we have a, a bunch of stakeholders, but we have the teachers themselves, and then we have the leaders. Uh, and when we're talking to the leaders, it's really nice to see how many of them not only care about their side of the bargain, but also about the teachers that they're, that they're uh, representing as well. So a lot of them are just interested in, in workload. Essentially, they're aware that their teachers have a very large workload. Um, and that if they can find something that reduces the amount of time spent on reports, um, then that's something that these leaders are really up for. And in fact, it's also really nice to see um, a few of the leaders we, we spoke to envisaging the teachers saving this time and not immediately filling it up with some other task. So they were willing to, uh, they were looking to embrace this time saved by teachers as a gift to their teachers, which, which you know, my concern, whenever you invent anything that saves time, is like is something else just going to come in and, and fill the gap and you know waste more time uh so that's one thing the other thing from a from a leader's perspective from a school leader's perspective is well two things really both relating to the quality of the reports one is a is a mundane consideration which is just about errors you know if errors go home in reports to parents that looks bad it, it feels bad for the parents it feels bad for the students this could be spelling and punctuation errors, or more importantly, it could be errors in the name of the student or the gender pronouns of the student, which can easily creep in if teachers copy and paste from one report to another. So this is a major problem that a lot of, uh, a lot of leaders report is a, a huge number of corrections, a huge number of errors. And even as much as you try and proofread, and, uh, proofread, the, proofread them and correct them, some of these errors still slip through and you end up going home to parents. So errors in reports is one of the big ones. And then apart from that, it's also about the quality of the reports, how individual each report is. Again, if you write just three reports for each class, you know, a good one, a middle one and a bad one, and you copy and paste one for each student, you're not really giving a, a very personalized picture for, for each student. So that's something else that these leaders are looking for. And Angela, the teacher perspective, what are teachers telling you when you engage with them as with your, uh, you know, approach? Oh, teachers, yeah, they, they absolutely love the fact that you can actually focus on the feedback. 
so you not worry about how all the sentences join together and whether it sounds a bit clunky and um, you know a bit disjointed it, you can just focus on the task at hand which is what do I actually want to say to this student and their parents um, that is actually going to resonate and motivate and inspire them to continue to you know work hard do well improve etc so yeah that that's the sort of key from the teachers it's about giving feedback in really short note form and the AI doing the job of pulling that all together um, and and those notes being able to be used for other other peoples in the class if if that's relevant but you know equally it's just the teacher voice is the focus not the admin around the report writing and the checking it's it's the, the giving of the feedback is what they like. So you guys must have done a lot of market research interview teachers parents what about students? You know, are they part of your stakeholder group that you engaged with? Just kind of as you decided to do this, because there are report databases. You know, you can. There are different companies where you can have pack, you know, drop down and and things like that. What was it that you were bringing that might have been different? So we we actually haven't spoken to that many students. It's something we need to do more of. Um, but yeah, it, I suppose in comparison to those kind of more static uh, report comment banks, we just offer a lot more freedom for feedback to be really personal and relevant to the student. Um, Pete, I don't know if you've got anything more to add on that. Yeah, I did manage to. I mean, I've been really keen to speak to some students. While we were at BET, there were, there were several groups of students walking around on the different days, and I managed to speak to a few of them, which was really great. Um, and I would definitely like to, it's amazing, not only with students, but also with parents. Um, I've asked many schools uh, that we've spoken to already um, what parents think about the reports they currently receive. And without fail, all of them have said, good question. I don't know. So it's, it's interesting to which the extent to which, you know, reports exist and, and we've been writing them and sending them home for decades and decades, centuries. And no one's even asking the parents <laughs> what they think about them. Uh, I find it uh, intriguing, to say the least. Um, what was the other point, Angela? Ah, about teachers, yeah, and uh, the comparison to comment banks. So just briefly to explain how Real Fast Reports works, in case it wasn't clear. Teachers write their reports as bullet points, so they can be very short. Excellent progress this term, works hard, needs to participate more in class. Or you can, you know, obviously uh, make more specific comments about particular things that students have done. Um, we then use AI to turn those comments into prose, but also each of the each of the bullet points you write is saved into a comment bank. But that comment bank is a personal comment bank made up of your personal comments that you have written as a teacher. It's not a generic comment bank that is made up of generic comments made by someone else. And the generic comment banks, they, it's really hard to make a report that fits together nicely from a bunch of, of components, of sentence components or sentences do you know what I mean, that you pick from a list, it's almost impossible to make that flow in a way that reads nicely. Whereas the, the, the beauty of the AI approach is that you write your bullet points without any consideration for how that's gonna flow as prose, and then the AI fills in the gaps and it comes up with a beautiful paragraph that sounds just like a human wrote it, but you have the flexibility to include whatever information you want. So you're typing these bullet points, you can include anything. You're not, you're not restricted by or constricted by the contents of the comment back if that makes sense. Interesting. And then the, the prose is something that then the teacher can edit again and put back in, or is there this back and forth? I mean, when I use ChatGPT, I'm always putting stuff in, but I go back and forth and I find myself having to 
edit it quite a lot before I find it uh, at a point that I'm comfortable with. I don't know, Dan, do you have that same experience when you're putting you know, data into chat GPT, you have to do a lot of editing yourself? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of, yeah. But I, I think it's kind of designed like that, isn't it, to be an iterative process. You, you keep putting more things in, but yeah, definitely. So yeah, for teachers, so that's the interesting thing. Well, with our approach, obviously our, our main aim is to save teachers as much time as possible. So the whole this whole idea of saying the right thing to ChatGPT to get the right thing back is called prompt engineering. This is the new the new description for that. Um, and as you say, it can take a few iterations for you to get the thing out from ChatGPT that you want. So we've done hundreds and hundreds of those iterations, and we've we've tested against hundreds of different report inputs, and we've read hundreds of different report outputs, and we've honed this prompt uh, that we've written. So that nine times out of 10, or maybe even more than nine times out of 10, the bullet points that you put in, when you generate that into a report, it's done. And you don't have to go back and forth. Or if you, have, okay. if you have to make some changes, you have to make a few small changes to get it sounding the way you want. But we've done the hard work of the prompt engineering so that it's not a back and forth exercise with us. It's a one shot thing. You generate the report and either it's ready to go straight away or it just needs a couple of little tweaks. So it's really fast. And the other thing to add, I have to say that, yeah, go on. <laughs> I was just going to mention about the temperature setting. So um, it's a more technical, I suppose, part of it. But um, you can, if you like, determine the extent to which you'd like the AI to be creative, given the input that you you provide it with. And so we at the moment have that setting quite low, which means that the AI sticks very closely to the input feedback that you have provided as a teacher. So that means that the output is largely exactly what the teacher is looking for um obviously you know you could you could crank that up and make it very creative and have it introduce a lot of um additional information but um that would likely result in needing to do more more back and forth and getting it exactly as you wanted it fascinating and have you had any parents call you up as like why is are they writing ai reports how do you kind of you know as a parent and dan is uh paying for private school so he wants a return on his money. He just doesn't want AI to be churning out a lot of stuff, right, Dan? You want some teacher to be working on that report card. So how do you mitigate that <clears throat> feedback? Or, you know, parents like, well, then why do I send my kid to school and I pay 36,000 pounds or whatever it might be? Well, I, you know, I you guess, you know, the teacher is, is providing the feedback. The teacher is, it's just emphasizing the, the effort that the teacher puts in on that feedback rather than on the writing. And, you yeah. know, uh, <laughs> that £36,000 a year or whatever you just quoted um, could instead much. go on higher value <laughs> activities for the teacher, right? Or as Pete said, you know, be invested into teacher well-being, make, uh, make your, your staff body um, more productive and happier and, yeah, able to better contribute in other ways. And that resonates, well, I think, and I think um, Peter, you said that with school leaders saying that they were willing not to fill up that extra time. And I think those are, you know, well-being is such a popular and, and important topic, especially in education. I mean, in the UK, you're reading about, you know, burnout and some very tragic stories. And that's replicated in international school. A lot of international school leaders and teachers, you know, just feel overworked and their plates are always full and they're being pulled in a million directions. So definitely, I agree, Angela, that resonates the, the kind of, you know, opportunity that maybe this brings. Is that something that you sell? Is that something that you promote as part of your sales pitch, Peter? What's that in particular? 
the well-being, saving time, then you can do other things. Is, is the time, I mean, your name is Real Fast Reports. Is time one of the main selling points that you highlight? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that we highlight, yeah. Um, time, accuracy and quality, time and accuracy and quality of reports, really. And those yeah. are, the are the biggest factors. You... And those are the things that you both got back as feedback from your customers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It depends on the context, obviously, that of the school as to you know what their stance is on whether they you know it, it, people have different reporting structures throughout their school. Of course, every school is different. They've got different frequencies. Some do them lots and lots and lots of times a year, all at once. Others stagger them. So you know, the burden of reports does look different for different contexts. And so therefore, you know, um, do, do, does the school want their staff to be reinvesting in their own well-being and, you know, giving them some more slack? Maybe, but it's slightly different for each, each, uh, each customer. Interesting. So you have got this technology. You're starting to interact with a lot of schools. It sounds like you're busy. You're working both in national and international settings is there competition out there who else has kind of decided oh that's a good idea yeah i mean interestingly we we came across a competitor the other day um our first as far as we can tell it's the only other uh the only other ai report writing tool that exists um and i think it's an interesting example because when i first saw it i was like oh this looks nice because they've got a really nice website uh, it looks really good um, so I was a bit scared uh, and eventually I, I plucked up the courage to sign up and, and give it a try uh, and it was really quite terrible I would say um, and I think it goes to highlight a couple of the things that we've been talking about um, so far uh, in, 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 this, in this call already. Uh, one of them is about the prompt engineering and how much prompt engineering you really need to do to get a good report out from the input. We've invested a huge amount of time in, in, into not only testing prompts, but actually developing systems for testing prompts in an efficient way so that we can, we can really you know, test hundreds of different prompts on hundreds of different inputs to test the outputs. And these guys, it's clear they, they hadn't really done much prompt engineering because the output sound, well, it was pretty bad. Um, it sounded like it had been written by a child almost, when obviously you want a school report to sound like it's been written by an adult. But the other thing, linking back to something you said before, um, and, and this idea about you wanting the teacher to do the work and you, wanting, you don't want AI to be writing the report. These guys have got a different input method. So our input method is text and their input method is, is ticking on, on scales. So on a scale of one to five, how's their behavior? On a scale of one to five, how's their homework? On a scale of one to five, and there's maybe six different boxes that you can tick. Um, and when you do it like that, you just can't, firstly, there's just not enough information really to write a decent report. And secondly, it doesn't get across anything about how the teacher themselves writes or how the teacher themselves communicates. Um, our reports, by contrast, even if you're writing bullet points, you know, some of your longer bullet points will convey your style of writing and they will convey your personality, even, even when writing in bullet points. So I think when people think about AI writing school reports, they might think of different ideas in their head. They might think of this idea of you just ticking a few boxes and it generating everything. Um, and if you have that idea in your head, then you're probably right to be suspicious about whether that can work because these guys have done it and, and it doesn't do a very good job. Whereas in our case, 
I would say, I would, I would question, you know, if, if you think that it's potentially questionable for, for teachers to write reports using AI, what's the difference between what we do and you writing an email in Gmail or you writing a, a document in Google Docs? Because right now, if you write an email, Google will complete sentences for you. It will fill in gaps for you. And really, our, our AI is pretty much just filling in gaps between bullet points, uh, linking them with prose. And I, and I wonder to what extent in the future, any text written on any computer will not be AI assisted, if you see what I mean. That's, no, so, I mean, so that's the parental... a really interesting observation. And I think, you know, this idea that the text that we interact with now, there's this cohabitation with AI. So it's kind of a collaborative text. It's predicting what you want, you know, and understands the patterns that you had and there was even a very, I was just watching this interesting uh, documentary called the IA, IA, IA Dilemma by the Center for Human Technology. And they are saying that 2024 will be the first election in the US that will not be human run in the sense that most of the data and most of the polls, most of the uh, behavior that they're going to be analyzing will all be AI generated. And with that, of course, comes some, <clears throat> some issues, bias, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what you're saying is that we as, an or, uh, as a group of people have to become more comfortable cohabitating with that and not seeing it as, as a minus or that's less human. I don't know. What are well, your thoughts? Uh, I, think, I think probably maybe we both have, have something to say about this. I think on some philosophical level, there are some, some big questions here um, about all of this. Uh, well, philosophical and also uh, totalitarian, potentially, um, and psychological. It's a complicated picture. Um, it is, it is. Go ahead, Angela and Peter, tell us. Um, well, one thing is that humans, humans are very suggestible. Uh, humans are very suggestible. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, right? I'm a physicist, but humans are very suggestible. And I think sometimes when when the AI suggests things, so when, when AI suggests a sentence completion for you, perhaps you might be willing to accept a sentence completion that you may not have actually written yourself if the AI, AI had not written it for you. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because I, rem I remember one time typing an email uh, and, and writing like, how's your fam, as if, as if I was going to write, how's your family? And it, and it completed, how's your fam, question mark, with like using fam as an abbreviation for family. And I was like, uh, I would never use that abbreviation. And the kids talk. But there, are, <laughs> there are other situations where maybe you would accept, accept suggestions that you may not have written yourself. Um, and so the interesting thing about these AIs at the moment is that they are big and they're run by big, centralized companies it's not a very ai is not currently a very diverse market in terms of the actual providers of this technology so if you're allowing ai to auto complete your sentences to participate in the crafting of, of the text that you write for work or for family or for whatever that is potentially open to influence do you not think from uh from sure. but, but it's no different from the current situation because when we were young and there was no internet, there, uh, John and me, there was, you were influenced by the, the, in the UK, like these five TV channels, you know, and then now the internet has been run by, you know, the fan companies, you know, the, the biggest influences, you know, Facebook, Amazon, 
network, Netflix, uh, Google, Netflix. I mean, there's, there's a small list of companies that, that have a big mind share of, of people now, you know, as well. So maybe this no, is just absolutely, the next stage absolutely. in that. It feels weird when it feels like it might be changing the very language that I myself write. And by doing that, it can also change the way you yourself think as well. Because if you say things and if you write things, you you, you tend to believe them. And so yeah. it could even get you saying things and believing things that like just my tiny little I know it's a bit... Uh, Once you mirror, start pulling at that thread, though, you know, we're all yeah. just a function of each other, aren't we? Because we're influenced by our community and social groups. No, but this us. is my point. This so... is my point. This is my whole point. But we're not... This is not about us being a function of each other. This is about a few, a few very small... Well a very small number of very big companies exerting control in a way that it's not just us being influenced um, by each other. It's true. There is a weird... There's a psychological um, term, I, I don't know what it's called, but essentially, if, you know, like, if you control what, you, pretty much what you're saying, if you control how people speak, you actually control how they think to some extent. If you, if you get people to speak yeah. in a certain way, um, then you actually, you actually do get them to think in a, in a certain way. I think what's interesting, and Peter, thank you for sharing those important reflections. I think, you know, I think my reservation and, you know, is that I'm excited about it. Don't get me wrong. I have it on my phone and I'm using whatever I can, but I don't think we are taking enough time because it's so fast and we're kind of on a treadmill. I'm not sure how much reflection we're doing or deep diving and really going into the nuts and bolts and saying, how does this work and what what is the ripple effect long term you know i mean it's taken us what 10 years 15 years to realize that social media has had an impact on loneliness and the way we interact and it's reshifted the way uh you know i mean i know parents that text their kids upstairs to come down for dinner i mean you know the, and that's nobody bats an eyelid or you go into the train and find somebody that's not on the phone so yeah. I just think it's the accelerated rate that's not giving us time for pause. And I would hope that we would have more time for pause. That's where I'm, I'm feeling like, boy, every time I turn around and Dan, you were, I think you said it really well, every 24 hours is something new and you're really keeping in touch. I mean, it, it's every day you wake up and bingo, there's something else that we didn't know about that's coming out. I don't know. Angela, what are your feelings as an educator and working at the Department of Education? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely difficult to keep up with. Um, I, I definitely feel the pain there. Um, the, I suppose the thing is, some of it is unknowable. So even if we have time to pause, can we really anticipate what those like things beyond the horizon will ever be? It's, you know, it's, as you say, you know, with social media impacts, we maybe had time to reflect, but we didn't necessarily anticipate the loneliness factor or with mobile phones, sometimes, you know, we thought this is a great device. It can really improve our lives in X, Y, Z. But did we anticipate all of the sort of downsides of having technology at your hand, at your service 24 seven? Probably not. So I think, yeah, the pace is definitely challenging, but equally there are some unknowable things that even if we have all the time in the world to reflect, we still won't know. Yeah, and by Dan, the time we know, thoughts, it'll be too late. Dan, yeah. your thoughts? Because you're really—I mean, you—you you know, you work in the tech industry. You're very active, and you know, you definitely leverage these tools. How you know, thinking of your two children and your own ethics. Yeah, I, I, honestly, like I—I'd I, love to have a strong opinion, but I, I'm just not sure, really. And I think it's—it's it's, everybody wants to say this or this or this. I, I'm just—I just—I'm just kind of 
following it all at the moment. And I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'm really like, uh, I'm very uncertain about it. So you're kind of sitting on the fence and watching. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I think, you know, for a lot of us that can't go that fast, that's, that's maybe the best way is kind of watch the river flow and when we can digest it. So, yeah, I mean, but, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur as well. So I'm, I'm looking at what are, what are the opportunities coming up, you know, um, it, it, it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you don't want to get shiny object syndrome, you know, you don't want to this to be the new crypto of, of 2023 and everyone's obsessed with it for, and then moves on to the next thing, you know, but I, but I'm, I'm really interested in it. Like for on a societal level, like what it could lead to. I think there's a wonderful quote and I'm going to ask Peter and Angela to think about what you think your responsibilities are. It's that when new technologies come, come new responsibilities. And that's uh, the Center for Human Technology that highlights that quote in one of their presentations. When you are, you're working with AI every day, you're, you know, talking to educators and other people in the, in the business. How much of ethical conversations do you have? And is that something that you want to make sure is part of your organization that's leveraging AI? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the one of the key considerations, really, when, when we started the whole idea of real fast reports. Um, we were aware from the outset of the potential for bias in the output of these AIs, for example, gender bias or racial bias. And so I, I didn't even want to go forward with the idea until I could assure myself that we could cope with that, basically, um, which we could, luckily, um, via some cunning methods. Um, but no, those I'd, I'd say we've been having those discussions more internally than we have externally. And maybe this is something where the public awareness needs to be to be greater around these potential downsides. I'm not sure because there haven't been if I think now about teachers or of schools who have, for example, asked me about about potential bias in our system. I don't think proportion. a single school has asked us. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's come up ad hoc in a few conversations. I think, for, for instance, more at BET. I think conversation usually turns more towards data and privacy than on the sort of bias angle. Um, and why is data privacy yeah, maybe more important than bias, Angela? I think it's just something schools are more alive to already, um, you know, uh, in terms of data sharing and GDPR restrictions. It's something that's already part of the language of senior leaders when they are looking to take on new suppliers, whereas yeah. the considerations around bias, it's a new, it's a new, new concept, isn't it? Well, not bias itself, but, you know, in association with AI, it might be something that they're not already necessarily live to. I think the other, the other thing to mention is that when we talk about AI with educators, often chat GPT and AI are completely synonymous. There's no sense that AI could be broader than that. Um, so I think we're just at the very start of the learning curve, you know, as a society, but also within within um, the subset of of uh, educators of understanding, you know, what this what this has potential to become. And ChatGPT has been sort of the key to unlocking the door, often for those conversations and beginning to understand the potential. But yeah, I think it's early days. What's interesting is, Peter, you say that bias was a big issue for you and you weren't willing to move forward till you had some clever workaround. I'm not going to ask you to divulge a company's secrets. I can secrets. tell you if you want. 
but what what I'm just wondering, what do you notice with AI where bias comes up? What is it about AI? I know that data sets are very broad and they can pick up, you know, on a lot of different biases. There's a lot of bias on the internet. Uh, is that what it is or is it more granular? Yeah, so the, the bias comes from the training materials, uh, exactly. So in order for these AIs to be able to write text, they need to be trained on vast, vast, vast quantities of text. And, and that's how, how it works. Um, so if the, if the text that they're trained on contains racism, uh, racist text, then the AI might well write racist text. If it contains sexist text, then the AI uh, might well write sexist text. And that is indeed the reality. Um, I haven't actually, interestingly, I haven't been testing uh, how, how biased AI can be uh, at all recently, because obviously I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to make sure the output is as unbiased as possible. So I'm not doing the opposite direction, which is seeing how biased it is. But when, so the precursor to ChatGPT was called GPT-3. And there's some brilliant blog posts that you should read about that, which have these horrific examples of gender bias. So someone would write prompts. So Chat G, um, sorry, GPT-3 would, in addition to you asking questions, you could also just write text and it would, it would predict what came next. So you could say, once upon a time there was, and it would predict what came next. So people started doing bias experiments with that, just writing things as simple as like all women, and then it would predict, and then all men, and then it would predict, or women at work often do, and then men at work often do this. And the, 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 the outputs from GPT-3 were horrifically biased. The difference between the outputs for men and for women was staggering. So this is something that OpenAI have been working on, and they claim to have made progress on it for, for ChatGPT, I, I can guarantee they haven't solved it, but I haven't, I haven't personally been experimenting with that to see how bad it is, because we're, like I say, we're trying to go in the opposite direction to make it better. Interesting. And so you, your product, that's one of your things is to make sure when I write a report that there's not uh, words, adjectives or adverbs or what nouns that might lead to a perception of bias in the report in other words say a difference between a girl and boys report exactly because i you know how how horrific how awful would it be if i if i if we made a tool that subtly went went about entrenching uh entrenching gender bias in you know in in students uh and in parents and in you know in the output that would be like for me that would be an absolute nightmare situation where you know i've made this tool to try and save teachers time and it ends up, you know, perpetuating gender bias, for example, or racial bias. You know, that for me is, is not an option whatsoever. Uh, it's to be avoided at all costs. But again, there, there's, there's a lot of philosophical questions here, you know, um, around this. There's philosophical questions surrounding accuracy and surrounding bias, for example, because AIs can be inaccurate with their responses and AIs can be biased in their output. And one, if, one philosophical question that I don't have the answer to is, what's the threshold that what's the threshold acceptable level of bias and what's the threshold acceptable level of accuracy because actually no human is unbiased and no human is 100% accurate you know as a physics teacher i've made i've made mistakes in physics before in front of kids guaranteed you know and as a human i'm de i definitely have biases i definitely have biases around gender and race unavoidable i don't want them but i, I do so an, an open question is what level of this kind of bias is is acceptable within ai is given that humans aren't perfect
Well, that's like a theory of knowledge question. That's a great one. Uh, we'll have to do another podcast. I don't have the answer. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Angela, tell us a bit about how are you approaching schools? How do people know about you? Is it just because you, you're, you're pushing it through social media or are you actually knocking on doors? Um, we're not we're not doing any physical door to door sales at the moment. Um, no, I know. Very <laughs> sure about that idea, though. I might add that to the list. <laughs> no, we've um. So we we've obviously uh, our initial users. Um, we had an established sort of network of teachers from our past experience uh, working in the industry who we approached. Some were really keen to just try it straight away and have, and they have you know been talking about it to other schools, etc. So some that through that route, and um, some has come through social media through our sort of minimal efforts I think it's fair to say in uh, in our social media activity um, some individual teachers started using it and then wanted to tell their school about it and their school started using it um, we've been to a few trade fairs so we went to BET this year as well um, but really it's just exciting that the teachers who do use it tend to want to talk about it um, to the teachers to other teachers and save other people time <laughs> Uh, you know um so so we've seen some growth in that way and i i assume you really uh teachers can buy individual accounts but for you is trying to get connections with school leaders and have districts or uh you know organizations that have multiple schools you have uh the academy schools in the uk and international schools or different organizations that have multiple schools how how are you approaching those groups is it through the teachers kind of bottom up um, so it's been a bit of a combination. So some has been through some senior leaders directly so that they would speak to their school and then perhaps mention it within their chains. Um, others, it has been a direct teacher finding us online and then saying, actually, I am interested in this for my wider school too. So um, then that being the introductory point. Um, but we haven't done any sort of whole district uh, work yet. We're still, we're still, um, still working at school and individual teacher level. <clears throat> Fantastic. Well, we have had the luxury of having and privilege of having you both on this podcast. I want to tell people that in the show notes, Peter and Angela have put links to Real Fast Report. So definitely, if you have not had a chance, you're going to want to pop over uh, to Real Fast Reports. And I assume there's a free trial for teachers. They can sign up. Yeah. Uh, and and if you have questions, I'm sure Peter and Angela will be really happy to respond. So in the show notes, any final thoughts, Peter and Angela, as you, you know, from your experience uh, from, you know, a year ago and here we are at the end of a school year, looking at a new school year, any just final thoughts or reflections? Enjoy the summer holidays, <laughs> relax <laughs> and remember that, uh, yeah, that well-being that you well-being as a teacher uh, is important for you as a person and, and for your job for doing your job well. I can't agree more. Angela, I echo that. I echo that completely. Yeah, you work so hard and do such a valuable job. Yeah, take the time that you need to to rest and relax over holiday. Yeah, the summers are nice. This means Dan has his kids for eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. It's the worst time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, both of you, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your perspectives. It's just wonderful. And let's keep in touch as you, you know, you grow. You're just two of you in the company. Uh, so you must be super busy. 
uh, Angela, how do you like juggle a full-time uh, job? That, yeah, that was going to be my question because I'm curious <laughs> from an entrepreneur point of view. How, how do you do it with, with a job juggling, and doing this? <laughs> juggling is tough. Um, Pete, Pete probably does more than one person's work. <laughs> is the true answer. I have had one or two late nights. <laughs> yeah. No, but I you're mean, managing no to easy do way. both. <laughs> yes. And yes, so you're managing yes. to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's always hard, I think, for entrepreneurs that are starting. Often they need another income, and so they're juggling two workflows. Sure. And how do you transition over from one to the other? Peter, I take it you're doing this full time? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I took that leap um, nearly four years ago now. I left teaching uh, to work purely on um, on startups, online online enterprises. Yeah. And is it bootstrapped, or do you have funding, or how have you structured that? We're bootstrapped so America, far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. That's great. That's yeah. where to be because you're getting over it. Uh, funding in the pipeline. So hopefully, by the time this goes live, we might uh, have some extra money and support as well. Cool. Maybe tell us about bootstrap for the listeners that might not know that term because it's an important term. Well, basically, doing uh, doing everything with your own money, or if necessary, I guess probably extends to to maybe friends and family funding. Um, so yeah, starting a company with minimal resources and yeah, it's your the approach own I've always taken. Everything I've done is wanting to do it because I, I, you know, I, I don't want to have a VC-backed global mega company. You know, like that. That's it's, everyone's got a different philosophy of what they want from a business. You know, so I've, I've always been very much in the community of people just doing it themselves. You know, starting small, keeping costs low, and, and not getting any funding. But yeah, but like Peter said, you know, there's different levels. You can get you can get like seed funding, you can get angel funding, you can get all the way up to VC funding and private equity funding and stuff so it's um there's different levels you know i've, I've just never had any in my kind of entrepreneurial career I, I like just to keep doing my own thing and not be beholden to anyone but i think with what you guys are doing you might need it you know if you want it because just given the scale of it yeah and for me one one factor is that i like everything i do ideally to be to be a learning and to be a, a grow growth experience for me because um, I've already started a few companies, I've built a few a few different products, and so for me, part of the decision to to go down the funding route was just that I've never done it before, and I'm interested sure. to see uh, see what that process is like, see what it's like getting in that expertise, you know, external expertise. Um, maybe it'll be a nightmare, but um, so far the indications look like the the investor we've got is really great. Um, but yeah, for me, it's just about trying new things as well. Yeah, and the investor yeah. we we have hope, hopefully will come through is in the education space as well, so. You know, it's it's not money um, without expertise. It's hopefully going to be useful strategic guidance as well. Great. That's Great. what you need. Yeah, that, that, that counts for a lot, for sure. Well, thank you, everybody, Peter and Angela. Again, show notes, real fast reports. Uh, check them out. And uh, we look forward to keeping in touch and hearing how things are. In the show notes, you have links and their bios. And of course, don't hesitate to reach out if you want to find more or sign up for a free account. There you go. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.